Good morning, everybody. Good to see you as we start this new series called Love Handles. Who names the series Love Handles? When we first discovered that title, we thought, no way, we can't call this Love Handles. I mean, who wants to talk about their love handles, right? And then the more we talked about it, the more we thought about it, the more we prayed about it, the more we realized God's love really does handle a whole most multitude of things that we need to be able to handle in our marriages. So I hope you'll focus more on the love and the way God handles that love than the uh, love handles, you know, that sit around us, right? Though I was never so thankful as, you know, I don't know when the, the, the trend started, but maybe five or six years ago that the dad bod came into being, you know. I was grateful because then I could just keep gaining weight and dad bods are, you know, that's the way they work and it's all good news and everybody likes it. At least that's what I'm told. I don't know. <clears throat> but when I think about love handles and I think about dad bods, I often go back to my own father who has been not with us for a little over 30 years now, but I often reflect on his um, lounge around clothes in the, in the house. Did you ever have a father who lounged around the house in clothes of which you were a little embarrassed? My dad would lounge around the house. Mind you, my dad was about 350 pounds. He was a big boy. And he would lounge around the house um, in clothing that uh, looked something like this, a white T-shirt, uh, white or sometimes solid other color boxer shorts, men's hose, and roper cowboy boots. <laughs> this was his comfort clothing. This is what he would lie around the house with. And oh, by the way, if you happen to be my friend, one of my other siblings' friends, one of the good neighbors or any one of his work colleagues, and you took your own life in your hands when you knocked on the door, he would come to the door in those clothes. Because this is what he loved to lounge in. This is what he felt comfortable in. This is the way he lived his life. And I was forever embarrassed all of my childhood and all of my early adulthood. And then I found myself sans the boots, wearing those clothes from time to time never answering the door, never responding to anybody, but that's just, you know, it, it's funny how the clothes make the person, right? It's funny how sometimes we, we realize somehow we end up wearing clothes that we never necessarily intended to wear or didn't uh, start out to wear, and the staff will tell you that if you come up here any given day, Monday through Friday, I'm going to be wearing a plaid shirt because that's what I wear. It's just kind of how I've come to grow into my adulthood clothing options. I don't know. I don't know how I got there. I don't know why I am there. But sometimes we realize our clothes identify who we are. Our clothes kind of identify what we're going to do for the day. Or our clothes identify how we're going to exist for the next hour or two, right? And we realize that some of our clothing is clearly inappropriate for certain things. Like it would be weird to wear a ball gown or a full suit to mow the lawn in, right? We just wouldn't do that. We wouldn't wear overalls to a job interview unless maybe it was to a feed store or something, right? We wouldn't wear a parka to go swimming because it just doesn't make any sense, and we probably would drown if we wore a parka when we went swimming. We know that clothing identifies not only who we are sometimes, but it identifies what we're going to be doing, how it is we're going to be going about it, and sometimes people can see in us whatever it is we're wearing, right? It's a funny thing, that. And the Apostle Paul, who was a master of metaphors, uses this imagery to help identify for us how it is we're supposed to live as followers of Jesus. And the wisdom that Paul shares with us and all who read his letters is not specifically for marital love at all, just like 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, was not written for marriages. 
But it is applicable to marriages and can be applied to the ways in which we live our marital relationship. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to be in and out of Paul's letters, and we're going to be seeing how the wisdom he identified for the greater good for those who follow Jesus can also apply to marriages. And I would also then therefore say to us that even if we're not in a marriage now, whether we're divorced or we've never been married or we find ourselves widowed or we're in a different kind of stage of life, I would just say to us that while we're going to be focused on marriages and how it is Scripture can apply to those marriages, I hope you will agree by three weeks' end that what we share can be applicable to many forms of relationships, but most specifically we're going to share it as it relates to marital vows. So this morning, Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, and he has some wisdom about what it means to follow Jesus. And I just want you to listen, because he couches it in the language of clothing, and the clothing of love in particular, and the ways in which we ought to relate to each other. And there's some great insight here about how we ought to relate this to our marriages. Here's the way Paul puts it. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called to the one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom and with gratitude in your hearts. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Paul lays out a great metaphor for us of this clothing that we ought to wear. And a part of what we realize very quickly is um, clothing not only identifies us, right? We are clothed. We're wearing winter clothes or summer clothes. It not only identifies us, but we also recognize that a part of the purpose of clothing is to help us know that it represents who we are as well. And in that representing, the clothing can be very purposeful and helpful in how it is we relate to other people. And so Paul begins to align this behavior, these attitudes, in a way that helps us know how it is we're supposed to live. And I'm going to apply them to marriage because I think they're extremely applicable to marriage. And I think we have to recognize that no matter how wonderful our relationship is, no matter how deeply concerned and caring we are for our intended, for our beloved, for our partner, um, marriage, we know, both love and marriage, takes work. It's not a walk in the park, right? It's not a, a, a Hollywood movie. It's not newlyweds every single day. It's not a honeymoon all the time, right? Marriage is a delight, is a gift, is a wonder, and it's a challenge, and it takes work, and it takes energy, and it takes effort. It's all of those things rolled up into one, right? And, and a part of what we need to own is that, therefore, I've got to I've got to kind of put some energy and effort into this. I've got to realize that there are the highs and the lows. There are the joys and the heartaches. There are the good times and there are the bad times. There's a reason why our vows say for better, for worse, right? 
those in the room who've been married 30 years or, or more, raise your hand. Am I telling the truth? Thank you. Preach it, right? Yeah, right? And, and so this is not bad news. This is actually the good news. And a part of what Paul wants to reveal to us is this glorious gift that says, man, if you'll just kind of present yourself in these clothes and let those clothes kind of make you the person you ought to be, then let's make this work, right? And so Paul identifies what you and I might refer to as work clothes. These are the work clothes of love. These are the work clothes of marriage. And let me just uh, pause by saying this work that we need to do, this energy and effort into which we need to put our uh, time and effort into is well worth it. It's worth every effort. It's worth all the energy. It's worth all of the work. But the work clothes look something like this. Kindness and compassion, meekness and humility and patience. That if we'll put those on, if we'll wear those purposefully, if we'll engage those things, man, it changes the relationship. And I hope we would also agree that you'll, you'll take note that all of those behaviors, compassion and kindness, meekness and humility and patience, they're all about the other, how I relate, right? I can't be kind to nobody. I can't have compassion for no one, right? I can't be patient unless I'm engaged in another relationship, right? I can't be meek and humble unless somehow there's somebody else with whom I'm in relationship, right? And so part of what Paul is saying is not only put these on, but engage them in very intentional ways so that they serve a powerful purpose. Most of all, Paul would say, the best work clothes, the best work clothes of all are forgiveness and love. Those are biggies, right? Forgiveness covers a multitude of sins just like love does, and love and forgiveness kind of wrap all this together, and they make it all worthwhile. And when we wear those well as the overcoat of our compassion and kindness, meekness and humility and patience, it makes it all worth it, and it makes it so purposeful and meaningful that it helps build the relationship, whether it's a foundation for an upcoming relationship or whether it's the roof over a long-standing relationship, this becomes critical. And so I believe, even though Paul is not speaking about marital love here, that we can realize that if these are our tools for marriage, they will help us claim the commitment that marriage needs and deserves, that they will be the things around which we will build all of this marital relationship for the good for the long haul, for all the way home, right? That's our goal. It's clearly, I hope, all of our goals when we enter into this relationship and enter into these vows, uh, whether at our uh, wedding or otherwise, that we say, I want to do this through thick and thin, through good and bad, through highs and lows. Let's make this work, right? So now we know those clothes. Now we realize what it is we need to put on and the ways in which we ought to engage those behaviors, right? Now, I want to share some wisdom that is not mine at all, but I think helps apply what Paul is trying to address. So, some of you may know this name. John Gottman and his wife, Julie, several decades ago began the Gottman Institute, G-O-T-T-M-A-N, the Gottman Institute. And the Gottman Institute's entire purpose is to help married couples discover lifelong love. 
And they've developed seven principles, and they wrote a book about it literally called The Seven Principles of Making Marriage Work. I think we have a graphic of it up here. The Seven Principles of Making Marriage Work. It's a great book. It was written uh, a few years ago, uh, and I highly recommend this book. But they also started the Gottman Institute, and both the principles within this book and the principles of the Gottman Institute can predict to a 91 degree of accuracy, 91%. I want you to capture that percentage to a 91 degree percent of accuracy whether a marriage will last a lifetime or not. Is 91% good odds? It's very good, isn't it? 91%. And they encapsulate these seven uh, principles. I'm going to talk about four of them. I'm going to send you home with some additional resources that will list out the rest of the seven. But they they, kind of have a, a standard bearer or a a primary indicator that says, man, if we can live well into this primary indicator, this is going to indicate whether or not you'll make it long-term or not. And for some of us, we might think to ourselves, well, by golly, surely that's about communication, or surely it's about conflict resolution, or, or intimacy, and there's all kinds of things I'm sure are going through your head right now that is, must be the primary indicator. And I'm going to suggest to you that almost all of you would be wrong. Because the primary indicator, while clearly a helpful thing, is not something that would be at the forefront of our minds when we think about it. And yet, once I reveal it to you, I hope you will discover it actually could make a pretty good difference. And it will be the foundation for all of the seven principles that I'm going to lift up. Here's the primary indicator that the Gottman Institute has discovered for helping marriages last a lifetime. It is the way in which how positive we are with each other when times are good. Think about that just for a minute. How positive we are with one another when times are good. Now, we can all think about how we weren't positive when times were bad, right? We can all think about how we got it wrong when things weren't going well, but we don't often think about, well, how is it that we are positive when things are going good? How is it that we've done well with each other when things have been going well, right? And isn't that fascinating? Because I maintain that all of those clothing articles of which Paul spoke are about being positive with each other when times are good. Offering kindness and compassion. Being meek and humble. Conveying patience and offering forgiveness. And certainly wrapping it all in love. Isn't that fascinating? That several centuries ago, some guy who was never married understood these principles to be helpful, not only in how we engage other people, but specifically how we might engage our mate and how it is that can make a difference in our marital relationship. How positive are we when times are good? I want to talk about four of his seven principles because uh, we don't have time for all of them. We can go home to our air-conditioned homes in a quicker fashion, right? So uh, the first principle is very simple, and it may seem so simple that you, you, you think to yourself, why would we even talk about it? But the first principle is simply this, know your mate. I hope you know their name, right? I hope you know that they, where they came from. I hope you know some of their family. But what they really mean here is that you know what inspires them, that you know what makes them tick, that you know what engages their heart. In other words, that you know them. 
Do you know what motivates them at work? Do you know what challenges them at work? Do you understand what deflates them? Do you know what causes them concern? This is what the Gottmans mean. Know your mate. Invest in understanding everything about them. Invest in helping them to know that you care deeply. This goes to the kindness and to the compassion uh, clothing that Paul writes about, right? That I care enough about you to hear you out, that I care enough about you to understand what gets you up in the morning, that I can finish your sentences and even your thoughts, right? Know your mate. This becomes critical because it, it, it goes to the, the whole concept of, I genuinely care about you. I don't just care that you um, are in this house with me or that maybe you help provide a, a dual income or that, that maybe we can create kids together. I don't just cherish those things, but I, I cherish you as an individual, and I cherish everything there is to know about you. Know your mate. You know, Paul would write about this to another church, actually, as well, when he used that other masterful metaphor of the human body, talking about the body of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he talked about the, the, the eyes can't say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. You see, this principle of knowing your mate basically says, I do need you. I need everything about you. I need you in my life, and I need you to know that I need you. You see, it, it changes the whole dynamic. It's not just we coexist in a house. It's not just we have raised some kids together. It's that I cherish you. I cherish what makes you up, and I cherish the very essence of who you are. Now, he's not saying you have to do this 100% of the time, 24-7, 365, but he is saying know and value your mate in such a way that you can finish their sentences or understand their thoughts. Know your mate. Second thing that Gottman talks about, second principle, is nurture a sense of fondness and admiration. In other words, nurture a sense that you really do cherish this person, that, that you really are fond of them, that you really do care for them. I, I don't know about you, but I'm really good about keeping score when things don't go well. Right? Yeah? I remember even just a few short months ago, I was keeping score in my head. Now, I never, I never tell Kay the score because I'm not stupid, <laughs> just not bright, right? So I keep score. You, you didn't do this, or you didn't make this happen, or this didn't go so well when you were taking care of it, right? And I, I keep score, right? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but my hunch is there's several of us that keep score in the room. And guess what keeping score does? It does not engender fondness. <laughs> It does not engender a sense of affirmation, right? What it engenders is, I didn't really care for that. And I, you know, more than I think about it, I don't really like this circumstance. Or even as far as, I, I don't really like you, right? That's never helpful. So I have to call myself out and stop myself literally in my head. Stop it, Humbert. Stop doing that. Stop tracking that. Stop keeping record of that. Stop making that happen. And rather... Remember when she did this? Remember how this worked out really well? Remember when we got to go see this? Engender a sense of fondness. Because guess what, friends? And again, if you've been married longer than, I don't know, three weeks, you know that there's a time that comes when you think to yourself, why am I in this? And who is this person? 
And why did I do this, right? And, and, and any, anywhere in between, right? And so we need to have kind of a record of the rights. We need to have kind of a, a realization that I really do love this person, something in my back pocket. I started about a decade ago uh, helping folks in premarital counseling with this one thing. I started at the, at the end of the first session. After we've talked about our families and kind of how we came to be and what it is we cherish about each other, I say, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to do one thing. I'm going to ask you to think of three words, three words only. They don't have to relate, but only three words. You don't get four. You don't get six. You only get three words. They can be completely independent or they could form a phrase of three words. But I want you to think of three words of why it is you cherish this person. Why is it you're going to commit the rest of your life to this person? Why do you love them? Three words, that's all you get. So I invite them to think and contemplate, and right there in the middle of the room, they, they come up with their three words. I have them write it down. I write it down as well. And I say to them, so here's the exercise. You, you've only finished half. The other part of the exercise is, look, it's just three words, right? We can all remember three words. We can all put three words to memory. And so the next time, whether it's next week or next month or 10 years from now, you think to yourself, I don't really like this person. I don't really like what you did, or I don't even know why I'm in this relationship. You think of your three words, because you will have put them to memory, and you can reflect on the way in which you do actually love this person. You are fond of this person. You actually are engendered in a relationship with this person. See, this is about compassion and kindness, and I would say even humility to a certain degree, the way in which we cherish one another. Paul would write about this to the church at Rome as well when he talked about love in chapter 12. I love, I love the way the um, New Living Translation puts it in, in Romans chapter 12. It says, don't pretend to love people. <laughs> don't pretend. Actually love people. Hate what's wrong. Uh, hold fast to what is true, right? Love each other with genuine and mutual affection. In other words, work towards this. Work on this and make it real and make it true. This is the gift of fondness and the gift of affirmation. Because just, I mean, we don't have to think about this long, but we realize the more I like of someone, the more I like that someone, right? And the more I nitpick someone or the more I look at the bad, the less I care for that person. So why not do the former rather than the latter? Nurture a sense of fondness and affirmation. The third thing that Gottman says is that we need to Turn towards our mate. <laughs> Much like the first one, I know that sounds silly, right? Well, I, I see them every day. I'm with them every day. I turn towards them. But they mean this both sort of physically and relationally. That is to say, when your spouse starts telling you about work or some other circumstance about which you really don't care, listen. Affirm. You don't have to solve, you don't have to repair, you don't have to make good, you don't have to do any of that. Just turn to them and listen. Acknowledge that this is real for them. Remember a couple weeks ago I talked about what Kay and I learned several years ago in premarital counseling as well, that uh, always ask for what you want and say how you feel. This is a moment to turn toward your spouse and say, or at least respond, I hear you. I'm trying to understand. How can I help? But just affirm them and acknowledge that this, whatever this is, whether it's a crisis or a celebration, 
turn to them and affirm them. Guess what? This goes to the crux of the matter at the very beginning, right? How positive are we when things are going well? This is a way to earn points quickly and easily. Give your attention. Just listen. Now, guys, I know this is hard. And I know if you're like me, your eyes glass over every once in a while. But stick with it. Hang in there and acknowledge that this means something, that this is a valuable moment, right? The psalmist get it, and the psalmist is, you know, all the psalms are powerful ways of the writer speaking up to God and sort of sharing our emotion and sharing our feelings to God. And Psalm 133 expresses this uh, just kind of succinctly. Look how good and pleasing it is when families live together as one. In this moment, when we face each other, we're acknowledging that we love each other. We're accepting that we're in this together. There's no greater harm that we can do than in these moments we ignore, we cast off, or we turn the other way. Because what we've said in that moment is, I don't value you, and I really don't care about whatever this issue is. And you can see, and my hunch is you've probably felt in your own relationship at some point, when your mate did this to you. And it hurts. And bit by bit, moment by moment, it chinks away at the relationship. So turn toward your mate and let them know that you love them. Fourth thing, let your mate influence you. Think about it just for a sec, right? I mean, we married this person for a reason, right? There's something about them we cherish. There are values or morals or behaviors or attitudes or thought processes or feel. There's something about this person we cherish. Let that rub off on us. Let, let that become a part of who we are. Let that, let that sink in. You've heard me say I'm not a very patient person. I learned this from the man who wore white T-shirts and boxer shorts. I didn't, I'm not a patient man. K is. And I've learned over the years to allow her patience to bleed over on me, to influence me, to help me because I need help. <laughs> our, our spouses can do the same if we'll be open to it. This is the clothing of meekness and humility. This is the clothing that acknowledges that you might actually have something for me, and it might actually benefit us together, and let's receive it, right? This is a gift if we'll allow them to help grow our souls and our hearts. You know, the Proverbs writer understood this. You, you know this proverb. It's Proverbs 27, just as iron sharpens iron so people can improve each other. Let's let the iron sharpen the iron, right? So, friends, there are three other principles. I'm going to tell you where you can find them. In the TMUMC app, in the digital bulletin that you can open up literally right now or when you go home, the seven principles are there. Or in the TMUMC app, in the huddle guide, which some of you use and some of you don't, but in the huddle guide, there's a PDF, and it has all of the seven of these principles, and I highly recommend them. I certainly recommend the book. I recommend the Gottman Institute. There's great wisdom there, and I happen to believe they've taken this wisdom from Paul and Jesus for the ways in which we can be better lovers 
of God and each other. Imagine how God's love has handled us throughout our years if we only began to apply that same love to the one that we love, our mates. What it would look like if we allowed God's love to sort of handle us in such a way that we have that joy and we have that elation and we have that opportunity to give it away. I love the way Paul put it in that love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. In verse 7, he said it this, this simple way, you know, love handles all things. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love endures and it hopes all things. This is what love handles. And I don't know about you, but it gives me great joy to know that love can handle my heartaches and my disappointments and my despair and love can handle my celebrations and my joys and love can handle our feelings and our emotions and our vulnerabilities and all of our relationships. I'm so grateful that God's love got a hold of me and has a hold of you and wants to handle all of your marriage, all of your marriage. If only we'll just clothe ourselves with the rich goodness of kindness and compassion, meekness and humility, patience and forgiveness, and most of all, the overcoat of love. May it be yours and ours collectively in the days that lie ahead. Will you pray with me? Holy and loving God, thank you that you do grab hold of us and that in loving, gracious ways, you help us to not only experience that love, but to share it. So God, I pray in the days that lie ahead, we would apply these principles, that we would discover this wardrobe, and that we would wear it well every day that we possibly can. God, this is our prayer. We lift it in the name of Jesus, whom we know to be the Christ. Amen.